Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. One topic I'm finding unavoidable at the industry and professional level that doesn't seem to be getting a lot of attention from retail investors is ESG. That's the environmental, social and corporate governance stuff that people at the top are really starting to think about and how these things influence corporate strategy and ultimately how they affect share price performance. At a recent company directors conference, this was a subject of nearly half the sessions as company directors become increasingly conscious of the non-financial risks in their business, which often become financial risks, let's be honest. And yet a lot of investors tend to be pretty relaxed about it. Most investors I speak to are really just looking at how to optimise returns in their portfolios. So today I'm joined by Nathan Bell, Portfolio Manager at InvestSmart, who's been on this podcast before and does an exceptional job of explaining how having an ESG focus and getting great returns uh, doesn't need to be mutually exclusive. Nathan, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Gemma. It's, so we're both at home with our kids in the background and um, <laughs> I have to apologise just in case anyone busts in or you hear the washing machine or something like that. Hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll be all right. So Nathan, ethical investing and ESG topics, and maybe you find this, I certainly do, can be really polarising. I found with a lot of stuff that we've published on NABTRADE and when I speak in other groups like the Shareholders Association and so on, people can get really fired up about one view or another. So they might feel really strongly about uh, decarbonisation or they might feel that climate change is a furphy or they might feel that having gender equity on boards is irrelevant or that it's incredibly important. It's kind of amazing how it brings out really strong feelings in people. But it, it seems to me that there's a really obvious reason to focus on ESG and that's because if you're not looking out for some of the issues you could just lose an awful lot of money. I think Crown is an incredible example where plenty of people were very happy to invest in a business that makes money out of gambling and everything was going swimmingly, all fine. And then really they're now at very real risk of losing their licence. There's massive social issues associated with it and significant legal consequences as well. So how do you think about these issues? How do you talk to people about them? Yeah, there's so much in that, such a loaded question too. I remember when we first went out and marketed the launch of our ethical fund uh, about, must be three years ago, and a lady couldn't believe that we could run an ESG fund and a just regular fund at the same time. She said, you can't be both. Uh, but to me, it's just an investment process and essentially you have a set of rules and you stick to it. And I think the one thing I'd say about, you know, and I try to tell everybody this, and I think one is that even if you don't have an ESG framework for um, or a mandate, you still got to look at those issues anyway because those risks are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the other thing I'd say too is about our process is we're not, we haven't reinvented the wheel in any way with our filter. We're just using a standard filter through Reuters and that spits out the bunch of stocks that we can pick from and then after that, we just make sure that those companies uh, pass the pub test because uh, sometimes what happens is companies slip through the net that have actually got a big chunk of their earnings coming from non-ESG compliant areas and that doesn't get picked up by the filter. So we've actually not invested in a couple of stocks that we really, really like in our other funds 
um, for ESG reasons. Um, you know, one's a mining software company where all its customers are resources companies. Uh, so on one hand, it's a software company, so it's not doing any damage to the environment itself or anything, but its customers fall into that non-ESG compliance uh, bucket. Um, but also the other thing is we just stick with what's, uh, I guess, the standard of the day because, you know, funny enough, I was watching a, an old Mars bar ad the other day and you remember the old slogan about a Mars a day helps you work, rest and play. You know, back then, maybe the Mars company would have been fine to invest in. And yet the thought of eating a Mars bar every day in the modern world, um, you know, it's just anathema to healthy eating and healthy kids and healthy adults. Um, you know, because obesity problem in all the Western nations, or main, you know, America and Australia particularly. So, you know, but people stand, they look at these issues and they take it very personally about what they believe in and not. And the difficulty with that is just to give you an example that an ex-colleague and friend always brings up to me. He says, well, is it ethical that Cochlear, who, you know, Cochlear is a company that's always going to pass your ESG filters, it helps with hearing, um, gives people hearing that otherwise wouldn't have it. Uh, do they actually need to charge as much as they do? You know, it's about $25,000 um, to go through their process. Do they really need to earn those sort of profit margins? Couldn't they earn a lot less and still help everybody? So is that ethical? Uh, I've seen CSL of all companies be excluded from another ethical fund uh, because, uh, and Four Corners had an episode on this uh, last year about they actually uh, pay people to collect blood in America and so the people that tend to need that money are, are quite destitute people. They, you know, they might have drug problems or they're homeless. And so it really sort of preyed on those uh, disadvantaged people. So for that reason, they took CSL out. So if you're going to start making those sorts of calls, you're really going to have nothing left to invest in. So what we just say is like with the filter, we'll, we'll go with whatever standard at the time and then stick with our investment process. And if you don't have a good investment process anyway, applying an ESG filter is not really going to improve it. Uh, but what we found and the reason why we launched the fund in the first place is because we looked through 450 buy recommendations from our sister newsletter publication, which I'm involved in and have been for a very long time. Uh, so we had that sort of to use as a test and the difference in returns was uh, for buy recommendations that would have passed our filter that we use today. The average return was over 14%. And for the ones that didn't, and also included most of our mistakes. Uh, the ones that didn't pass the ESG filter, the average return was 10%. So it was almost a 5% gap. And that's really just because it puts you into quality stocks. But, you know, I've had arguments about James Hardy's industries, which we've included in the fund in the past. We've done it now on valuation grounds. But the stuff that happened at James Hardy, which was absolutely disgraceful, um, happened, you know, decades ago by absolutely abhorrent people that are now no longer got anything to do with the business. So... Um, to say that it's an emotive subject um, is an understatement, and I absolutely understand where you're coming from. Yeah, I think anyone of us who uh, who mentions it in any way <laughs> finds out very quickly that people have really strong views on it. James Hardy's such an interesting example. I um, and it, you know, it's not just with how people invest, right? I was um, I was uh, talking to someone whose husband is a tradie, and he will not use James Hardy products even now because of what happened. So anyone who's not familiar with it, um, James Hardy uh, produced asbestos-based products for a really long time and was aware of the issues with mesothelioma and effectively killing a lot of their customers and people who were using the product in the most horrific way imaginable. And 
uh, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Nathan, but um, the board was found to have been covering that up for a long time and not appropriately trying to fund uh, restitution to those people. Obviously, there was enormous compensation that needed to be paid. And had they done the right thing and actually paid people out, there would have been, uh, I guess, less outrage. But because they were yeah, trying to on. avoid those payments, it was um, it was horrific. So people still remember that stuff. And it's it's a great example, right, of what goes wrong. And you wouldn't have imagined that. James Hardy was an unethical company, I imagine, back in the 50s or whenever this was going on. Well, I remember um, thinking when we launched the fund, so about three years ago, um, that was really when a lot of the banks or that process was starting to happen where um, the banks uh, had to go and face legal teams and start defending their actions over a fairly long period. And, And again, it was found to be absolutely abhorrent behavior. It was splashed across all the front page news. And what happened was, you know, a few people lost their job, you know, the NAB guys lost their job, Thorburn and a few others. But then here we are, you know, less than, that's probably only two years, uh, less than two years now since that all ended. And you've got Josh Frydenberg telling them, don't worry about any curbing of the lending or any of these other recommended practices. Um, just hurry up. We've got a COVID epidemic. Um, go out, Go about your business as you normally would. And so, you know, and that whole time the banks would pass our ESG filter to invest in and we haven't invested in them. Uh, but it's just interesting at the time to put those in the portfolio, I'm sure, we would have got a lot of feedback from people saying, you know, you, why are you invested in the banks? These people are absolutely terrible. This is what they do, how they've treated people, uh, predatory lending and a few other bits and pieces and just outright lies. And yet if I put them in now, I think there'd be a lot less feedback because those individuals are gone. So I think one of the things I think is going to change, and, and I hope it does change, is that there's a very black and people, a lot of investors are using a lot of black and white terms or filters to decide whether uh, businesses should be included or not. And I think over time, we'll actually see a bit more deeper analysis. For example, there was a company that I would have loved to have had in the portfolio, Hanson, it's a small utilities uh, software company. And we would have doubled our money out of it. It's just got a takeover office. So it would have done great. But a lot of its customers are utilities, which have you know very non-green energy sources. And um, although that's what we mainly have to use at the moment. And again, it's a software company. So you could say, well, it's not doing anything itself, but I just don't think that passes the pub test. I think the pub test is just such a sensational uh tool to use I guess the only thing that's funny about a pub test is there's plenty of arguments in pubs and often they're fueled by alcohol which probably doesn't help the situation (laughs) at all (laughs) a couple of beers in everyone's got much stronger opinions than they might do otherwise um Uh, well with Hanson for example about 70 or 80 percent of its customers came from you know non-green energy sources then it made an acquisition and so then it was about half and half so where do you rule the line with a company like that because I think we actually could have said look you know it's increasingly going green um, and, you know, maybe in three or four years, 80% of its customers will be green energy. And so I think that would actually be quite an acceptable company to invest in as long as you're very confident that change is going to happen. And I think that's where ESG investing is heading. I think it will become a lot more nuanced um, than what it has been. But I also think that's going to, uh, while it's going to improve things, I think it's also going to make it a little bit more difficult because the people who are emotive, they'll just see things in black and white terms. But I think that nuance is really where the value is going to be added in the future because companies are moving this way anyway. Now, you've already seen Woolworths just let um, spun off Endeavour 
because they don't want to be associated with the pubs and pokies anymore. So uh, this trend is identifiable, undeniable, and it's going to increase in time anyway. I think you're so right. And as I said, I don't I don't get a lot of uh, questions from retail investors about it. It doesn't seem to be front of mind for uh, a lot of people who are looking at direct stocks for their own portfolios. But at a at a macro level, when you talk to asset consultants and super fund trustees and certainly company directors, so many people would be aware, but others may not. You know, company directors hold a lot of liability uh, for the decisions that they make when they're on a board, and a lot of them have liability insurance, which is wise. Um, so there's there's a real level of awareness at a very senior level and at a macro level about how important this stuff is. Uh, Rio with the Duke and Gorge recently and all this kind of stuff. Like when this stuff goes wrong, the PR consequences are huge. People lose their jobs. So you used Andrew Thorburn as an example, but there'll be plenty of others as well. And it it is a really massive issue. And at sort of the top level, it seems to be getting a, a very significant amount of attention. And if you read the newspaper, um, obviously you need to, think about your news sources because um, it wouldn't be every newspaper, but, you know, if you read, uh, say, the Fin Review, for example, every day they will be publishing something that is a significant court case or a change in how companies are expected to behave. I find it super interesting. You're talking about nuance, and I find this this is really where it gets interesting, right? So there's some obvious areas that people, everyone wants to avoid them, child slavery, if you're for child slavery, you're in the minority. <laughs> we, don't, we don't see a lot of people who are okay with that. No, I can't um, even do know. that at home. Yeah. <laughs> God, I can't get my kids to uh, to put their plates in the dishwasher. Um, you know, cluster munitions manufacturers. There's some stuff where people are like, that is a, like a hard no. Uh, universally uh, sort of reviled kind of areas, whether you make a lot of money out of it or not. And then there's this massive list of businesses with really complex business models. You talked about banking as a good example. You know, I work in the online broking part of NAB and, you know, all the Royal Commission stuff was completely foreign. It's, it's sort of not how, it, it's not anything to do with what we do in our part of the business, but we're all part of the same business. And other businesses that have these incredibly complex supply chains, like the tech companies you were talking about, makes it really difficult, certainly for an individual, um, as they won't, won't have access to the tools that you have, um, or even professionals to kind of work out whether or not you're investing in something that makes you uncomfortable or not. I think a lot of people just find it so hard they just opt out. From your perspective, because you do have the tools and you are putting the work in, are there any sectors or companies that you really like that are just straight clean skins? You're like, this is a great company doing a great job. Um, the fact that people are worried about cochlear is, is a challenge. I love cochlear and I've got it in my portfolio. I was like, oh, that makes me really sad if people think that that might not be an ESG example. You might see some research uh, occasionally that says basically all the returns um, you know, in the US, and I think it applies to Australia as well, over very long periods actually come down to about 4% of stocks. That fact in itself is quite incredible. And what it's telling you is that, you know, there's, I think there's 3,000 stocks listed in Australia, but, you know, half of them wouldn't be making any profit. So in a sense, they're uninvestable. Um, you might not invest in resources companies, so that takes out a lot of them. Uh, a lot of them will be just too small. Um, so there's all these reasons that you actually end up with a fairly small pool of stocks to invest in in Australia anyway. Um, but uh, there's companies, I'll just tell you quickly, um, another one that we haven't included 
And I think this is a good example of what needs to improve in Australia because we actually don't have a lot of the companies that fall into those sort of munitions areas and fast food. Um, you know, I've got a few, but not that many. Like in America, there's heaps and heaps of those types of companies. Um, but La Visa is one that's worked out well for our other funds, but they just don't provide any information about their supply chains. It's fast fashion jewellery. It's probably worn once or twice at best and then thrown in the ground. And I just find... You know, both on one, we can't check the supply chains. We don't know where any of this stuff is really coming from and who's making it. Uh, but second, the company's not really going to any effort to show any transparency around these issues anyway. And it just doesn't pass um, the smell test because you know this stuff is just getting made and thrown in the ground. So it's really quite an, an awful business in that sense. So that's one we haven't included. Now, that might seem like a fairly easy one. But the company that I really like, and it's the same one, Gemma, that we spoke um, in detail about last time, but things have just got even much, much better over the last year. And I say it's a clean skin, but it's a good example of, you know, it's not one I'm going to be able to do boots on the ground research for. And that's a company called Frontier Digital Ventures. Uh, the guy who's running it's named Sean DiGregorio. He's ex-REA group. He then went and fixed up iProperty, and I think the share price went up tenfold in a fairly short period while he was in charge, and he actually sold iProperty back to REA group. Uh, after that, he took his the money he made from that and joined forces again with Catcher Group, who are a couple of uh, guys in Singapore. Uh, one's actually an ex-Australian uh, from Queensland, and uh, he's made a lot of money with a, a guy there called Patrick Grove. Uh, you might have seen in the papers at, at, at stages. And anyway, what they've done is they've created a online uh, classifieds businesses, mostly property. There's one or two car businesses, but they're fairly small. But rather than just have one, it's a, like a diversified portfolio of them in frontier markets. So rapidly growing markets, but obviously more risky than investing in the US or Australia. But this is really the last area where you can buy any of these businesses because they've been consolidated everywhere else. And we're actually in the last stages of the consolidation now because what's happened is a couple of uh, very big online classifieds companies, including Adaventa, uh, I think bought uh, a big business off eBay. And so they've actually been making it less important to invest in the online classifieds businesses. And they're a very large company, so they've actually got a number of very small individual uh, geographic uh, businesses that Frontier has been able to pick up for very cheap prices and because Sean's been sort of covering this South American, uh, there's an, an interest in the business in Brazil, um, but the, the jewel is in Pakistan, which I'm sure freaks people out when you first hear that. But when these businesses are the leader in their countries, they are a license to print money. They're basically the closest thing to a monopoly other than actually being a monopoly like a Sydney airport. Um, but even better, there's no restrictions on their pricing power. And you've only got to have a look at... Um, the earnings and the average revenue per user for REA Group over the last 10 or 15 years to see how it's increased because uh, people have to compete to get their advertisements at the top of the page on the website. Now, that's just extremely lucrative. And what Sean stitched together, in particular in the last 12 months, is that South American business, it's all tied together now. Uh, and also Pakistan, is, uh, the business called Zameen, has now turned profitable for the first time. I think 10 of the 14 uh, which has actually recently turned to 18 uh, different businesses have now reached break even. And what we know from uh, looking at Move and REA Group and Domain is that when they turn profitable, the profits increase rapidly from a low base. And because these businesses don't need to reinvest a lot of money back into the business, um, it's just a, the hard work's been done. It's really capturing the market leadership is the hard bit. 
And in fact, it's worked so well for Frontier's individual businesses that NASPERS, who is probably the biggest company in the world most people have never heard of, uh, worth hundreds of billions of dollars because of its investment in uh, Chinese internet giant uh, Tencent, they actually had uh, competing businesses in, in places like Pakistan and South America, and they actually wove, uh, or waved the white flag last year and joined forces with Frontiers businesses and Sean stitched together a deal now where we'll potentially sell them at a pre-specified uh, multiple of earnings, which we're not privy to, um, but I can only imagine what that amount would be. And they also, NASPERS also owns the other 70% of the mean that Frontier doesn't own. So these are extremely valuable businesses and although it's been sort of reflected in the share price, it's nowhere near um, has that been done fully. And I actually think this can still go up multiples in the future. Um, so what I love about this, a really important part of our investment process is the guy who's running the business has skin in the game. So Sean has almost virtually all his own personal money invested in the company. And to me, that's the best possible governance you can have because your own reputation is on the line. Um, and a lot of people will say, well, you know, Having skin in the game doesn't always work. You know, particularly people who've been invested in Harvey Norman probably say that hasn't worked out for the best for a long time. Um, but usually, uh, the people with skin in the game think much more long term about their business. And the last thing they want to do is have any exposures, you know, from any of these ESG things or just any damage to their reputation or their businesses. Um, so they take a lot of care. Uh, but again, I can't go on the ground in Pakistan and go and look around, but I can look at the Zameen website and it will surprise people that the apartments over there um, look no different than they do here in Sydney or in Melbourne. Um, there's a lot of expats that live in London, so very wealthy people that buy more Pakistani real estate uh, when prices fall or when the currency falls. So it's a really good business and it's just getting started and I just think it's going to be um, yeah, it has the potential to be a wonderful business, which has been why it's, why it's been one of our largest positions in the fund from the get-go. I've thought more than once about that company since you mentioned it last <laughs> time, but I've never gone on to uh, to look at the Pakistani real estate market. I think um, when you live in Sydney, you've already got one massive complex market to deal with. Uh, yeah, going to Pakistan feels kind of extraordinary. The point you make, though, is really interesting that we're all landlocked at the moment and so assessing companies in real terms in front of the uh, in front of the people that work there is quite hard but with tech businesses it's much easier right you can look at the products and services that they provide uh, and often make you know pretty good assessments um, of the quality of the product at least and then think about the financials as a, as a separate issue yeah I think the really important is- thing it's sorry Jim, the one of the important things at the moment is you know, valuations are so high and, and uh, people are looking for, you know, do I hang on to these great investments even though they're trading at twice the valuation as what they were before? And people saying, well, other people saying, well, is, you know, is there any value left anywhere? And um, this is a classic example to me. It's just it's flying under the radar. You know, we don't manage billions and billions of dollars so we can have a decent-sized position in it, which will move the needle for us. But if I look back at 2000 and uh, right before the GFC, now, there's lots of examples there. Like, uh, CSL was one of them. You could have bought it $30 or $40 at the absolute peak before the GFC came in. You could argue the GFC was the worst crash or de- recession since we've had since the Great Depression. Um, ARB Group, which is trading at about $45, I think, today, uh, was trading around $3 there at the peak before the GFC uh, because people worry about high oil prices. Um, so, you know, there's always something to buy, but 
I just our focus really at the moment is trying to find these next entrepreneurs that haven't been discovered by the wider market yet and making sure we just hang on to them. And I think that's the biggest mistake we've made. So forget about ESG principles or investment process or anything else, finding the next great story. What we just haven't done as well as what we should have over the last you know 20 years at Intelligent Investor is just not hung on to those great companies. And I just making sure that when we find um, you know, the frontiers of the world or, or an ordinate, which I think we discussed last time, that we really hang on to them this time. And it turns out that's the actual hardest thing in, in investment, not sticking to an ESG template or mandate is actually just hanging on to these great businesses when they look expensive. Oh, that's so interesting. Because <laughs> the biggest issue I can see investors dealing with at the moment is exactly what you've just mentioned, which is the market feels really expensive for where we are in economic terms. Uh, I recorded a, a conversation yesterday and it should be published by the time this is published around inflation and the likely impact on interest rates. Just how fragile the world economy is if you consider even the tiniest rise in interest rates will send a lot of people to the wall. And so a lot of our investors are fully aware of that and really, really nervous about valuations. And we can see it in the fact that uh, cash levels are rising. They are now up where they were prior to COVID and they'd been rising for quite a while leading up to COVID as investors were like, I just can't see anything I want to buy. I'm not excited about this market. There's been a shift from super aggressive buying last year. We saw so much buying as the market fell and bottomed out and then as it came back and you know, prices were still well below their highs for a while there and that was when we saw investors buying. Now they're selling, like they're trimming or they're sitting on the sidelines, we can just see this real lack of enthusiasm for the market where it currently is. And I was going to allude to what you said last year, which is there's always something to buy. But your point is also it's incredibly important to hang on to your good stuff. I think they just surprise you over time. It's just a bunch of companies which you think they just, you know, ARB is a classic. I, I remember I thought I was quite clever um, just back when we were just running the newsletter business in around 2014 or 15. It got to around, I think it was about $17 and we put a sell on it and it was really highly priced and it was, we actually thought we were going into recession and um, the mining, that was really when the mining sector just um, collapsed there for a period. And um, that was when all the property prices in those faraway villages sort of just went down 80% and just thought this is not good for ARB, that the bank's share prices were falling and we just thought ARB selling, you know, bull bars and four-wheel drive accessories was going to be right in the firing line. And, you know, I was looked pretty smart there for quite a while. And here we are, it's been one of the biggest beneficiaries of COVID and the stock price is $45. So, for a long time, I look very smart, but I don't look very smart now because the share price is up nearly 200% since then. And I think that's the thing about great businesses. They just continue to surprise you. And it's almost a bit arrogant to sit there and say, you know, price to earnings ratio of 40 or, you know, whatever it is, is expensive because you're not working in the business. You don't necessarily appreciate what can change in the future. And it's almost like you're second guessing or thinking you're superior to the people who have actually worked in the industry for their whole lives and own these businesses and that you can do better than them, even though they're worth hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars. And, and I'm certainly not. And so I just think, you know, again, I use CSL as an example, like that share price back, I think it was about uh, trying to think it was around the GFC anyway, there was a period of five years there where the share price went nowhere. Now, you know, I challenge, you know, any investor to think of how many people would have actually hung on 
that business for five years when it did absolutely nothing right before it went up tenfold um, over the next sort of six or seven years. Uh, and that's what I've learned since the GFC. You know, I'm very good at when prices get cheap or we go through those crises at doing the buying. But what I've uh, not been great at is holding on to these great businesses. And I could say, you know, through the GFC, um, you know, I, I personally recommended a whole bunch of absolutely fantastic businesses, you know, recommended Aristocrat all the way down to $2. Um, and then stupidly, we sold it at seven, thinking we'd done quite well. And, you know, it's a $40 stock today. Uh, so, you know, you try and pick these sort of valuations and um, think you've owned them for a long time. And really you haven't. And I just see more and more, that the people, the individuals, you know, these aren't business people, they're just regular people, that the ones that get really wealthy are the ones that have just hung on to those great businesses for the longest. And that's the thing that's the hardest thing in investing. And, and I'm feeling in my gut now, um, you know, we've got quite a bit of cash in the, the ethical fund. It's about 30%. Um, I really love the companies we do own, but we sold some great businesses recently on valuation grounds. And, um, you know, I hope I'm right. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get another chance at them sometimes. But for most people who aren't sitting there living and breathing this stuff every day, the best thing usually is just to hang on because the people running the business um, find these amazing ways and, and at different times that you might not expect to create an enormous amount of value that gets incorporated into the stock price in a very short period of time. So if you don't own those businesses during that period, you just miss out on a huge amount of money. So, you know, I'm telling, you know, listeners this as much as I'm telling myself. I think that's incredibly powerful. I, you know, it feels like the biggest issue that investors are grappling with right now. We do, and I have to always acknowledge this, we will have plenty of investors who found last year very difficult because they were fully invested pre-COVID, but we had an awful lot of investors who were not fully invested pre-COVID and an awful lot of new investors come through post-COVID who have just done astonishingly well, who picked the bottom or were buying as the market came back. You know, they might not have picked Afterpay at $8, but they might have bought it. Our average buy price for Afterpay last year was $40. So if you've sold really any time this year, you've still doubled your money and done incredibly well. And for many other investors, they're just looking at it going, well, now what do I do? Like, what do I do after I've done so well? How do I not lose money? How do I ensure that I get any gains that are there? I'm worried about where the market's at and so on. So I think your advice is incredibly powerful. Uh, there'll be plenty of people who, who take some comfort from that, thinking great businesses will continue to do well. And a point that I will say to validate something you said, uh, the companies that we have found where our investors have been underweight have been CSL, Macquarie and Fortescue. Now, primary primarily prior to last year, right? So um, there's been very aggressive buying in Fortescue and CSL in particular since last year, but mostly people didn't hold them because the multiples were too high, like they were too expensive. And of the big four banks, unless you bought uh, super early, they haven't held Commonwealth because it was the most expensive. And yet they're the ones that continue to do well and the ones that keep grinding higher and giving people more and more reason to be glad they hold them. So it's interesting what people didn't buy often hurt them quite a lot. It's really tough in this environment where we've actually seen, you know, value actually performed really well over the last 12 months, you know, coming out of um, the COVID bear market. A lot of those stocks that, you know, were hurt because of that have actually recovered the most since then. Uh, but what we've actually seen recently is people, you know, sort of two or three months ago, people were starting to worry about inflation and higher interest rates. 
And then all of a sudden it started, you know, bond yield started to go back down again. And now everyone started to pick up those old similar and popular growth stocks again. And we've seen that in our own portfolios. So it almost looked like there was going to be a bit of a change, you know, of the of handing over the torch from value to value from growth. And now we've actually gone back to those same growth companies again and, you know, the zeros and the CSLs and, and whatnot. Um, but I think the most important thing as an investor, and again, it doesn't have anything to do with your, whether you're an ESG investor or not, um, it's just understanding yourself. You know, what are you going to do in the next downturn? Because the next financial crisis is always coming. And, and I think they're probably going to come more often now just because you know, monetary policy has done everything it possibly can. It's pushed interest rates to zero. Everybody's levered up now. You know, individuals are, uh, companies not so much, uh, but the government is. You know, central banks with the money printing. There's just so much easy credit out there. You know, the house market, I think, is in Australia is valued at four times annual GDP now. Um, these are just monstrous numbers. Um, so it's not going to take much of a change, whether it's in interest rates, like you said, or just in, um, there's a lot of speculation at the moment in pockets. So if people get frightened, you know, all these Robin Hood traders, um, and the, if the IPO market slows down or there's a big bust, you know, like Newix or more of those type situations, it won't take much for that money to rush out the exit. And the question then, how do you actually act in that situation is what matters the most. You know, are you going to stick with your stocks that you love uh, or, or are you going to sell some of those ones you don't love so much to buy the actual other wonderful business that you don't already own, like the CSLs or the Cochleas? Um, or are you going to be one of the ones that panics and tries to time the market and then maybe never gets back in? And that's the one you don't want to fall for. So you want to have that uh, idea of who you are as an investor cemented in your between your ears right now because once the panic comes whenever it comes you know that's when you sort of lean on um, what you've already done you know we don't generally find a lot of new ideas in market panics we tend to just invest in what we already know because there's so much going on share prices are falling clients are getting a little bit panicked and there's just a lot going on you don't have a lot of time to do new research um, so I just think as a mentor of mine used to say, if you're going to panic, panic early. Oh, I love that. Panic early. Excellent. <laughs> Hopefully we won't have to panic for a little while. Nathan, you guys at Investmark produce heaps of great content. As you said, you come from a newsletter background and from a research background, which is incredibly valuable to retail investors. And you've got a number of listed products that people uh, could be interested in, including your ethical funds, which has those filters you talked about. If people want to find out more, where should they go? Yeah, this the intelligentinvestor.com.au website um, is the main website we use, and it's our subscription business. And uh, I think we charge around $700 a year these days. And I actually think it's grossly undervalued for the service it is today. We've got good coverage of you know 70-odd stocks, which are great businesses. We don't cover everything, but we cover what we think are the best ideas on the market. And now we've got uh, three funds listed on the ASX, so they're actively managed ETFs. And you can check out all their announcements and get the monthly and quarterly reports as an ethical income and growth fund. Um, they're all doing pretty well at the moment, so uh, it's good times. And now the pressure is to keep up the good work. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What have you done on. for me lately? <laughs> Nathan Bell from InvestMart, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Jeremy. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We've received some fantastic feedback and we love getting your questions. We love any suggestions for topics also, the things that you're really interested in hearing about. So please email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. 
To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.